0: The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion,
1: coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi everyone, and welcome to The Nectar Corridor, a podcast where we explore the incredible world of Mezcal, the most emblematic and diverse spirit of Mexico. I'm your host, Nikki Nakazawa. Over the past 14 years that I've lived in Mexico, I've worked across creative disciplines as a promoter and producer of music, art, film, food, and drink. I've been based in Oaxaca since 2018, and I'm one of the co-owners of the Agave Spirits brand, Neta, working with farmers and producers from the district of Meoatlan in the Sierra Sur region. Because I live in Oaxaca, You'll find that many of the folks that I speak to throughout this first season are friends and colleagues who are also based here. However, incredible mezcales and agave spirits can be found all across Mexico. While I'll be focused principally on the territories of Oaxaca State, I believe that the themes we'll be touching upon are relevant to the cultura de mezcal or mezcal culture as a whole. The term, the Nectar Corridor, refers to extensive migratory route that female nectar feeding bats take from the deserts of the american southwest to central and south mexico bats co-evolved with agave or magueyes as they're called here and without them and the important work they do pollinating and dispersing seeds there would be no mezcal the nectar corridor speaks to the interconnectivity of plants animals the elements and human beings and for me Mezcal represents one of the greatest achievements of this complex network of associations and dependencies. It is truly the spirit of these lands that today we call Mexico. So what does Mezcal taste like? If the only words that come to mind are smoky or tequila, then you've come to the right place, because you're wrong. Mescal encompasses tremendous diversity and can taste and smell like everything from a field after a heavy rain, peach blossoms, horse sweat, green apple, or ripe bananas. In this first season, I had the pleasure of speaking with other Mescalophiles, many of whom are inheritors of the various Mescal traditions across this country. We listen to them consider what mezcal means to them, from planting and harvesting of agave to its consumption during local celebrations and use as medicine. For this episode, you'll listen to interviews from three colleagues of Oaxacan origins that I greatly admire, Sosima Oliveira, Marco Choa, and Eduardo Ángeles. Their stories trace important events in the history of mezcal and introduce many of the themes we'll be exploring this season. Mescal offers us flavors that comfort us, encourage us, and transport us to far-flung places. Planting, harvesting, cooking, fermentation, distillation, water, earth, sun, and fire. It's everything. This podcast was originally recorded in Spanish. Our conversation with Sosima is interpreted by Naomi Shimada.
0: Mi nombre es eh, Sosima Olivera. My name is Sosima Olivera, and I'm from the upper Chontal region of a town called San Miguel, Suchiltepec.
2: Sosima is a maestra mezcalera, a title given to those who have mastered the art of making
0: mezcal, from the caring for the plants to distilling them into a spirit. I have dedicated my life to everything that goes into making mezcal. It's not just about distillation. It's also farming, teaching passing down tradition, and of course, drinking it. So that's what I do. We are the Chontales of the highlands, so we live about 2,000 meters above sea level. Our palenques, which are what we call mezcal distilleries in Oaxaca, are at a lower elevation because of the temperature, so they're down near the river. I was born here, and I grew up here. I wouldn't even say that we are mezcaleros. We've always been farmers, and we dedicate ourselves to the fields. During the rainy season, we plant corn, beans, squash, pretty much everything that we'll eat year round. This land has always been dry, so we try to take advantage of the rainfall to grow our food. And then during the dry season, we focus on making mezcal. We're farmers first, mezcaleros second.
2: Sosima grew up around
0: mezcal, and
2: she doesn't really remember ever being taught how to make it. Mostly, she learned just by helping her family, strong, hardworking women like her grandmother and her father, who was skilled and passionate about every part of the process.
0: When we were kids, we would take turns working with the family in the Palenque. I really experienced my childhood as something quite poetic, which in turn led to a deep love and admiration for Mezcal. I remember the river flowing, being surrounded by animals. I remember the waterfalls nearby. It was like paradise. You'd go fishing in the river, you'd catch an iguana, you'd see deer, you could reach up and cut guavas. Everything was life. We were surrounded by life, and so I've tied that in with my view of mezcal. The situation has changed so much these days, it's really hard for me to make sense of it because this idyllic outlook is so ingrained in my heart and soul. Growing up, I was surrounded by very strong women. My grandmother was really hardworking. During the dry season, she'd make 15 or 20 liters of mezcal. She'd make clay pots. She was always doing something. And my father was also always working too. But I think if you were to ask him if he taught us how to make mezcal, that's just not the way he looked at it. We were just in it from the beginning. We'd take turns stirring the pot, checking on the mules, watching the maguey grow. No one ever said to us, Okay, now you're going to learn how to do this certain process. We were just doing it. In the 80s, my dad started planting espadín, which were these really big magueys. I remember the joy in his eyes when he would cut them down to harvest them from mezcal production. He was so proud of how tall they had grown, how well he had cared for them. And that's what I remember learning, how to care deeply about the work that you do. I think that's why they called it a tradition, because that knowledge is inherited, without you even realizing it at the time. You see how it's done, and then you just end up doing it. One way she learned how to plant magei
2: and the milpa was by observing weather patterns and the positions of the stars in the
0: sky. So I remember that my dad always observed the skies before working the farm. He'd say things like, Well, the rain's going to start in May, so we'll wait three days after the rainfall. We'd observe the rain, the thunder, and the moon during that time. And then we'd start sowing the field. We'd plant the corn, the beans, the squash. It was important to observe from dawn to dusk, when it's going to be cold, when the weather will change, when it's time to harvest and store the crops for the year. My dad used to tell us, get up, it's late. And I was just this little kid and I'd open my eyes and I'd be so tired. My dad would say, do you see the position of the stars? It's already three in the morning. We never had clocks in the house. The roosters crow at 3 a.m. and that's how we knew it was time to get up. There are very precise elements in nature that helped us navigate. And it's interesting because these dynamics have changed. Roosters no longer crow at 3 in the morning. It's more like 4 or 5 now. Sosima has been involved in the mezcal world
2: for a long time, and I was curious to know more about her experiences traveling throughout Mexico and meeting others in the field. I asked her what was one of the most surprising or moving takeaways from her travels. eh,
0: I think that I was most impressed by the flavors and the aromas I encountered. It's been like a passion project for me to go out and meet more people that are making mezcal. So to be able to taste those individual mezcales and hear about them from those who make it, it's really an eye-opening thing. And I feel like after listening to the people from all over Mexico, Michoacán, Guerrero, Durango, San Luis Potosí. It's the people from Oaxaca who speak the most passionately about mezcal. We really do have a strong passion for what we do. The other thing that really surprised me during my travels is that there is a lack of knowledge about mezcal in the big cities. It's been about 12 or 13 years now that we've been traveling and teaching folks about mezcal. People really did think that a glass of mezcal was just about the same as a commercial large batch tequila. So we'd offer them a glass of mezcal and we'd start talking about it and they would take it like a shot. And we'd have to say, no, this is mezcal, it's really strong. You have to sip it and taste it. And so we really noticed the need to talk about mezcales, to tell their stories and give some context to the people in the big cities. I'm one of those people that insist that in order to make a traditional mezcal, You have to inherit the knowledge first. So for example, there are people who tell me that they've been making mezcal for five years and that what they make is a traditional mezcal. Well, okay, I respect your point of view, but personally, I have inherited this tradition for generations upon generations. I think that's what would make a mezcal truly traditional. Otherwise, it's not a traditional mezcal. By recognizing this distinction, I am recognizing the people who were here before me.
2: I asked Sosima about her thoughts on the future of Mezcal. There have been so many changes in the industry in recent years, and I wondered about how she views Mezcal's growing popularity in light of its roots in tradition and
0: local culture. To be honest, I'm a bit disappointed because I've heard about a lot of university students who are studying Mezcal, and they're completely uninterested in the actual subject. And on the other hand, there are new generations of Mexicans that are returning from the United States. They left Mexico when they were 15, and now they're coming back in their 30s. Back then, their families were making mezcal. But these young generations are now coming back into the industry with a completely different mindset. It's all about business. They've seen the rise in popularity of mezcal in the U.S., so they're coming to Mexico to mass-produce and export mezcal. Lo primero es, tienes que sembrar maguey. But the first thing is that you have to plant the maguey and you have to relearn how to actually harvest and ferment and distill. Otherwise, what are you actually going to create? You left Mexico when you were 15. You completely disconnected from your traditions. And now all you want is business? I think that's very grim and quite sad. What we need is more humanity. We need to be aware of what is around us. If you have a river near you, take care of it, observe it, see how it nourishes the surrounding plants and animals. Once that water is polluted, it spreads through everything. We have stopped thinking about the community, which is something that we have held in high regard in the past. We need to return to thinking about the collective good. Mezcal is a drink with a lot of identity and a lot of aroma and a lot of flavor. I'd suggest that if you're trying mezcal today, write down your thoughts, your feelings. Everyone's palate is different and every mezcal is unique. So one way to consciously drink mezcal is to take notes. Write down the type of maguey, where the mezcal was made, what it tasted like. And then a few days later, try another one and do it again. Mezcal has a way of speaking for itself. When you drink it, think about the land, the flowers, the story. And think about how it makes you feel in your head and in your heart. Remember that if you're starting from a bad mental state, the mezcal is only going to activate and elevate that anger or that sadness. So if you want to learn about these complexities, then start taking
2: notes. As Sosima reveals, mezcal is the inheritance of land-based cultures. As it has become increasingly embraced as a market commodity, the relationship to the land has shifted, mostly in ways that are destructive to the environment. Marco Ochoa has also borne witness to many of these changes. In the early 2000s, he and a small group of mezcal heads from across Mexico embarked on a mission to educate folks outside of producing communities on the history and culture of mezcal. What makes a mezcal traditional, and why is that classification so important? How can a label help preserve a culture? Our conversation with Marco is interpreted by Edward Colombia.
1: My, my name is Marco Ochoa, and I've dedicated my entire life to traditional Mezcals and the culture around them. My great grandfather, Demetrio, founded the town of Mengoli, he was the first municipal president. The name Mengoli comes from a bird with a similar name that would sing in the area.
2: Marco comes from a long line of mezcaleros, and his knowledge of Mezcal's history, particularly in the region of Mihuatlán, is vast.
1: Mezcal has historically been a rebellious spirit. Decades ago, there were inspectors that were dedicated to monitoring Mezcal production, charging taxes, and preventing many families from legally producing Mezcal. There were very few palenques that had proper permits for production. It was essentially at the inspector's discretion whether or not these families could continue to work. Sometimes they would arrive and break the stills and leave the families with nothing. There was a lot of government corruption back then. Mezcal has always been present in rural Mexico. It was a peasant drink, and it's a very important part of the rural Mexican economy. But because of all the government abuses, past and present, much of Mezcal production continues to be underground. And this leaves the families and the producers in a very uneasy state. One thing you have to understand is that mezcal is a seasonal product. Today we see it being produced year-round because of market demands. But you have to be really careful with this because overproduction can devastate the magueys and can impact the flavor. A good mezcal is not going to come out of the rainy season. That's just a fact. When we talk about tradition, we're not just talking about things from decades ago. Mezcal tradition is dynamic. It's continually changing. It's alive. Something else we need to understand is that in these areas, people were planting and harvesting other crops. Fruit orchards were a large part of the agrarian economy. Of course, there were some people that were dedicated solely to Mezcal production, like my grandfather and his buddies. In the 70s, they would take their mezcales across the country to the coast. All along the way, they would exchange products and sell goods so that when they returned home, they would bring honey, coffee, venison, and other products that were otherwise really difficult to come by.
2: Part of Marco's goal in educating people about mezcal's history and culture was to help create a set of terms that easily explained some of the more expansive concepts in the mezcal lexicon. Terms like gusto historico, for example, which has resonances with the French concept of terroir and literally translates to historic taste, refers to the flavors of traditionally made mezcal. I asked Marco to expand a little bit more about these terms and why educating people about mezcal is so important.
1: I started developing these concepts around Mezcal in 2005 with a group called Traditional Mezcales of the Peoples of Mexico. Some historical writings claim that the Mezcal boom started in the intellectual circles of Mexico City, but that's entirely untrue. Mezcal really began by knocking on the doors of Mezcal-producing families, For example, Gustavo Contreras in Durango, Graciela Ángeles in Ocotlán, Cornelio Pérez in Ejutla, and me in Miahuatlán de Porfirio Díaz. And along with other friends, we started doing mezcal tastings and having meetings, and we quickly realized that we were in need of generating a proper vocabulary for traditional mezcal. We used samples and statistics of older, documented mezcals, and we visited other producers to see how they measured their alcohol content. Some people say that by sharing this knowledge about mezcal, we're somehow rescuing or recovering something. But no, it's not lost, and it hasn't been forgotten. It's always been in rural Mexico. But it's been looked down on by the rest of society. It's important to remember that mezcal was considered a low-income drink for a long time, until we began to give it the attention it deserves.
2: For Marco, this attention has been a long time coming. Remember how Sosima said that mezcal has a lot of identity, tradition, aroma, and flavor? Well, Marco agrees and thinks that this complexity is why traditional mezcal deserves to be preserved and defended as
1: much as possible. Mezcal is an incredibly complex distillate with the most complex raw material needed to make a spirit. So for us, it was absurd that suddenly a whiskey distillery releases a batch of 100 bottles of a single malt for so many dollars and nobody bats an eye. But a mezcal with magueys that take 20 years to mature also yields a hundred bottles, and you try to price it fairly, and people suddenly say, whoa, 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 why would that be so expensive for mezcal, whether they're in Mexico or outside of Mexico? You have to understand that mezcal is like a trinity. It's a food, it's a drink, and it's a plant. That's why I think it goes far beyond drinking. It's part of the culture. In terms of production, first you have to harvest and cook the mage. Once that's done, and cooking takes several days, the mage is removed and crushed, unless you're going for a dry fermentation. Not all species of mage allow for dry fermentation, so it obviously depends on the plant. Already at this point, you can imagine that the market doesn't give you the time to plan out all of these steps. Big brands have to produce mezcal quickly. The process of a traditional mezcal, from cutting the plant to final distillation, is approximately a month. And that's not even counting the years of growing the plant. Each region has its peculiarities and its own techniques. Even its own maguehs. And from there, we get regional flavors, which then lead to the concept of historical taste. And keep in mind, there are as many historical tastes as there are mezcals in Mexico, because each town has a different taste. And the only way to learn about all this is by asking the people of those towns, how do you drink your mezcal? How do you make your mezcal? What species of plants do you use and how do you process them? who is involved in the production. I believe that as long as those mezcals continue to be consumed in their place of origin by the inhabitants of the area, we will continue to keep the tradition alive. When the people of those areas are no longer consuming those mezcals, who can guarantee that the mezcal is well-made? In other words, today, the only people who can guarantee that a mezcal is well-made are the people who have been making it for generations. This is a complex time for mezcal. The markets are demanding more and more leaders, which means that more maguey has to be planted, which feeds into the problem of deforestation. So there's all this hunger for more product, And there are huge players entering the field, and they are willing to destroy anything and everything because all they want is money. Which leads me to tequila, for example. It's absurd that tequila fields have been declared as World Heritage Sites by UNESCO when it's a monoculture, meaning it can only be made by one single species of maguey. There's no biodiversity, and that's exactly what large markets want. They want to be able to just copy and paste. That is the most dangerous thing. Ending biodiversity. That's going to have the biggest impact on tradition. We need real products that have a direct effect on these economies. Something good that has happened recently is seeing families reunite those families that were destroyed for many generations due to the fact that the father or the older brother had to go work elsewhere, they've started coming back and making mezcal again. I tell consumers to ask questions, explore, appreciate, and if they can, also visit the people who are making the traditional mezcal.
2: Well, I completely agree with Marco. We really need to recognize and embrace mezcal in all of its complexity because that's the beauty of it. It can't just be reduced to the smoky cousin of tequila, which is what a lot of people liken it to. Marco had just one last thing to say about that.
1: Those who say it's the smoky cousin of tequila haven't actually tried it. I'm sorry, but they're speaking from a place of ignorance because they simply have not tasted good mezcal.
2: While Marco fought the good fight in Mexico City and in Oaxaca... Eduardo Ángeles was making waves in Santa Catarina, Minas, working for many years with his family at the Real Minero Palenque, established by his late father, Lorenzo Ángeles Mendoza, and then venturing out to start his own holistic mezcal operation, La Locura, in 2014. Eduardo, or Lalo as he's called, is committed to an expansive conception of sustainability and interconnectivity. It's inspiring to say the least. And in this interview, we get to hear about how he and his co-conspirators have used mezcal production as a vehicle for restoring the lands of his community. Our conversation with Lalo is interpreted by Sasha Desiree. My
3: name is Eduardo Javier Angeles Carreño. We are in the community of Santa Catarina Minas. My name is Eduardo Javier Angeles We are in the community of Santa Catarina Minas, which belongs to the district of Ocotlan in Oaxaca. By profession. I'm an agricultural engineer focused on forestry production. But out of passion and vocation, I'm a mezcalero, or a palenquero, as we call it in Minas.
2: Like Sosima and Marco, Lalo has mezcal running through his blood.
3: I come from four generations of mezcal producers. This town was founded in 1580 upon the arrival of the Spanish and due to mining exploitation. So people came from different places in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s. But suddenly, in the early 1900s, there was a period of famine. My great-grandmother told us that it didn't rain for eight years, which meant that there was no corn, and that was the basis of the diet. So a large portion of the population died, especially older folks. People only really took care of children and pregnant women, just like in any period of famine. So, for that reason, we can only trace my family back to 1900. All older information is lost. My father founded the Real Minero Palenque in 1978. I was four years old when it was legally registered. It took a while to do so, because during that time there was a lot of persecution towards Maguey-based distilled beverages in Mexico. For a long time, it was called Palenque Tierra Blanca. It was named by the people in the town. Back then, it wasn't just a place where they made mezcal, it was also a place where people would eat and have parties and interact daily. There was harmony between the humans, animals, plants, and water. I come from a generation that grew up in the rivers. We would play among friends, splashing and sort of drowning each other. We learned to swim. And we were always in the water, until the rivers dried up. Minas is a town located between two rivers, and they dried up for 18 years. It was from the late 1980s up until almost the year 2000. It was a phenomenon. It was such a long drought. People started emigrating and stopped planting magays. On top of the economic disaster in the country... We were also faced with the corruption in Mexico and the mismanagement of our natural resources. So those who had planted magueys were not able to regrow them after harvest. But going back to the happier times, people really lived in harmony. There was mezcal production during the dry season in the months of November and December to April. And then during the rainy season, people dedicated their work to growing corn, beans and squash, You'd go down to the river and drink water, and the water was clean and plentiful. This was before soda was widely available, so everyone drank fresh water. People had a whole system. Even the houses were built out of maguey fibers and earth. They had their own food production process, their own magueys. It was a very harmonious system of living.
2: While growing up the son of a mezcal producer may have predisposed him to becoming one himself, Lalo's path has still been very much his own. After studying agronomy and later migrating to the U.S. to work in everything from making Vietnamese popsicles to working construction, Lalo returned to Minas on a mission to make mezcal. Rather than stick with his siblings at the family Palenque, Lalo made the controversial decision to embark on his own venture.
3: Why? Well, by the time I got back to the world of mezcal in 1996... I noticed a really concerning trend. The level of destruction alone, the arrival of brands that have no respect for the communities or the humans that live there, it can't possibly end well. They're just making alcohol to make money. Personally, I believe mezcal is a drink that needs to be cared for, because it's one of the few drinks in the world that preserves many natural and traditional processes. These processes cannot disappear, because they contribute to so much more than simply making alcohol. So I said, well, I have to do something to change this. It did take me a while to make a palenque. I was 43 years old when I finally understood that this was what I really could do to help make a change. We come from family farms, from people who work hard every day so that their children can go to university or have food or have clothes or have a house where they can take refuge. That's the kind of people we are. And within our own reality, the Palenques were what really helped bring that to life.
2: Similar to Sosima, Lalo doesn't limit himself to just making mezcal. For him, producing the spirit is just one aspect of his connection to the land.
3: A palenquero doesn't only focus on making mezcals. We also know how to plant corn, harvest crops, take care of animals, etc. In 2004, I started to germinate seeds because I had started hearing about the rise of the Mezcal market, and I knew it would result in the destruction of a lot of natural areas. So, as an agronomist, I started looking for other propagation alternatives. So in 2012, I opened a communal nursery for plants to educate other communities. I believe that we all have a responsibility to take care of the environment. If you don't take care of your environment then you can't take care of your own home. Think about everything we've inherited, this whole way of life. I was talking to someone recently who asked me why people don't care about the environment. I told them that it's because humans simply don't care about the earth. That's the reality. And it makes me sad. When you love something, you take care of it. If you don't love it, then you destroy it. In the late 90s, I started categorizing mezcal's per maguey species. And I realized that with this diversity, you could work with mezcal year-round. Obviously, a lot of production has been affected by the arrival of mining companies and the destruction of our lands but we do try to work all year. It's a great advantage to have so much diversity. We have around 50 species and subspecies of magues in the area. We still have a lot to explore with mezcal, but we have to be purposeful in our approach for it to thrive in the future. The truth is that nowadays I'm seeing a loss of identity in commercial Mescals. It's all in the name of opportunity. I worry that Mezcal is taking the same path as tequila. It's homogenizing in the name of commerce, and it's becoming more expensive. It's really disheartening. So we really have to fight to change this. People are working hard to preserve what they do and how they do it. And I think that in the future, it can still be profitable from an economic perspective. I think it really is worth the effort.
2: Up next on the Nectar Corridor, we'll pick back up with Lalo and get into the first of a two-part episode, where we will review the essential steps involved in mezcal production, from growing and tending to the plants to distilling them. We take a walk, literally, through different palenques in Oaxaca, and talk about agave propagation, spiders, mother plants, firewood, rocks, and earthen ovens. I'm excited to take you with me to meet the lands, the plants, the animals, the microorganisms, and the people who make Mezcal possible. Thanks so much to Sosima, Marco, and Lalo, and to our voice actors, Naomi, Edward, and Sasha. Saludos desde las tierras del Mezcal, y hasta la próxima. The Nectar Corridor is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Nectar Corridor team, producer Jackie Nowak, edited by Max Kotelchuk with the research done by Olivia Mayela and the intern Rosina Castillo. Thanks to Las Norteñitas de Oro for the use of our theme song, with translations done by Jackie Nowak, Carlin Crosby, and Emily Vizzo. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk Associate Producer Quentin LeBeau, Production Assistant Amelissa Utingo, and Sound Intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, Instagram, and Twitter, at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more video podcast content. You can learn about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. The Nectar Corridor is originally produced and recorded in Spanish. If you'd like to listen to the original interview, you can search
1: for El Corredor del Nectar wherever you get your podcasts.